The podcast you're about to listen to was taken from one of our live programs. If you don't already listen to Radio Maria Live, you can do so on DAB in selected regions of the United Kingdom or by downloading the app. Just search for Radio Maria Play. All the Radio Maria podcasts are conveniently stored on this app. We'd like to thank all our listeners who support us with monthly donations so that we can continue to be a Christian voice by your side. To find out more about becoming a monthly supporter, visit www.radiomariaengland.uk. Hello and welcome to Credo on Radio Maria. This is a program that nourishes you in your Catholic faith. Um, with me, Tim Hutchinson, today, who will be facilitating, and with Father Richard Ounsworth, OP. How Hello. are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you very much. Good. I'm going to give you a little bit more volume there. Oh, and okay. There thank you. Uh, good. I think you're coming through nicely, loud and clear. And um, we're continuing, as we have been, once a month with a, a deep dive into uh, St. Matthew's Gospel. Um, I've been away uh, the last time you came on, um, so I don't know what, what it was that you did last time. Well, we are going to do Matthew 13 today. Lovely. Which is the parables of the kingdom. Nice. Um, so this is, a lot of this will be familiar to listeners, I suspect. Um, but we'll see how we get on, shall we? Yes. Will you begin with the prayer for us, please? I will with pleasure. In yes. the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created. And thou shalt renew the face of the earth. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, Grant that by the gift of that same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, the story so far, uh, we had the parables, not parables, I beg your pardon, the discourse on mission, which you may remember is the second of the five big chunks of Jesus' teaching. That's chapter 10 of Matthew, and that is then followed by two chapters, perhaps not surprisingly 11 and 12, in which we return to following more or less the story of Jesus that St. Matthew, I think, has taken from St. Mark. But Matthew emphasizes the way in which Jesus's mission brings division. We see a combination of indifference and contempt from some and positive hostility from others, notably the growing hostility of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, something I don't think I had time to emphasize last time is that chapter 12 ends, almost ends anyway, with the reference to the sign of Jonah. 
Jesus is asked by the scribes and the Pharisees for a sign as if somehow to prove his credentials. And he replies, an evil and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The reason I mention that is because the next chapter, which I'm going to talk about today, chapter 13, begins with the parable of the sower. And I have a theory about the book of Jonah and how it relates to the parable of the sower, which I'm going to take the liberty of sharing with the listeners because, well, it's fun and interesting, and I hope they won't have heard it before. So, chapter 13 is the first time St. Matthew explicitly uses the word parable. He tells us that Jesus began to preach in parables. He has actually used parables in a loose sense already. The word parable really means simply a figure of speech. So it can be anything from a, a simple metaphor or simile all the way up to what we would think of as the big set piece parables, such as the first of them that we're going to come across, which is the parable of the sower. Interestingly, in St. Mark's Gospel, which, as I've suggested, Matthew is using to some extent, there are actually only two really big set piece parables. The parable of the sower in the first half of the Gospel, which is obviously about the preaching of the kingdom and the success or not that that preaching finds. The second in St. Mark's Gospel is the parable of the wicked tenants, which clearly anticipates Christ's passion. Matthew has both of those, but he adds an awful lot more, and we'll see some of those later today. But let's look, first of all, at the parable of the sower. And I'm assuming that listeners know this story quite well. The seed falls on different kinds of soil, and depending on where it falls, it has different fates. And the reason I think of Jonah whenever I think of this parable, or conversely, I think of this parable whenever I read the book of Jonah, is because of what happens at the end of the book of Jonah. It's a short book. I strongly urge listeners to go and read it now. You could read the whole thing in 10 minutes. And in the last chapter, when it looks like Jonah's mission has been a complete success because he's preached to the Ninevites and at the very, very brief preaching of Jonah, these arch enemies of the people of Israel have immediately converted, repented, put on sackcloth and ashes and fasted. And God has said, I'm paraphrasing here, fair dues, I won't destroy Nineveh after all. And that ought to be the end of the story. So it could end at the end of chapter three, which is when all that's happened. And Jonah has a bit of a whinge, but there it is. But instead, we have the fourth chapter in which Jonah sits outside the city in a sulk to see what will happen, which seems odd because we think we know what's going to happen. Nothing, because his preaching has been successful. But then he starts to get burnt by the sun, so God 
magically or miraculously establishes a huge plant which overshadows him and protects him from the harm that the sun was doing him. Just as Jonah's preaching has protected the Ninevites from the harm, same word in the Hebrew, that God was going to do to them. So Jonah is protected. But that very night, God appoints a worm, one of my favorite phrases from the whole of the Old Testament, God appoints a worm which eats the root of this enormous plant, it withers and dies, and then Jonah is once more exposed to the harm of the sun. And that reminds me of what we read about the soil that falls on rocky ground, sorry, the seed that falls on rocky ground. Christ says, they did not have much soil and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And it strikes me that that is so similar to what happens with that plant that shoots up overnight, but then withers away. And of course, as he's going to go on and explain, in the explanation of the parable that we have a little later in this chapter. What was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. When trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. Well, the Ninevites, they received Jonah's preaching with great enthusiasm immediately let's all put on sackcloth and ashes but did it take root in them we know actually the city of Nineveh was destroyed shortly after the time of the prophet Jonah so we may well suspect that Jonah knew exactly what he was doing when he continued to sit and wait to see what's going to happen he knows that God will in fact keep his promise to destroy the people of Nineveh because their repentance is going to be very, very short-lived. It was completely over the top and shallow. And it seems to me that one of the messages of the book of Jonah read in the light of this parable, and again, conversely, of this parable read in the light of Jesus's reference to Jonah that we've just heard, is about the need for our repentance to be something more than skin deep. God isn't necessarily looking for dramatic, immediate, impressive signs of repentance. What he's looking is for us to actually sit, think about it, pray about it, and make those deep down changes that we need to make, which will issue in genuine and deep-rooted repentance. And of course, the whole of the preaching of Christ, we're told from the very beginning of the gospel, is repent, repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. That's the message that he's been preaching throughout. The whole of the uh, Sermon on the Mount can be really encapsulated as simply repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. When we hear this preaching of Christ, are we like that seed falling on shallow soil or are we really taking it deep into ourselves? When Christ goes on to explain the parable, 
he says, what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So that would be one of my takes, at least, on this parable of the sower. I think the other thing that's interesting is what Christ says to his disciples in between the parable and his explanation of it, which I've already alluded to. The disciples say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that, seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. Now, there's a very interesting and subtle but important difference between what Christ says there in Matthew's Gospel and the version of this that we have in Mark. In Mark's Gospel, they ask him the same question, why do you preach in parables? And Jesus says, so that they will listen but not understand. So in Mark's gospel, the whole purpose of preaching in parables is in order that those outside might not be able to penetrate the secrets of Christ's teaching. Whereas I think Matthew, in a certain sense, softens that. He's not telling us Jesus is wanting to exclude people. Rather, he's saying these are people who have, as he goes on to explain, as prophesied by Isaiah, who have decided not to listen. For this people's heart, he says, quoting Isaiah, has grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes. I would heal them, but they would not understand. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. So the whole purpose of parables still is to make a distinction between those inside and those outside. But what Matthew is emphasizing, I think, here, following on from those last two chapters, is that those who are outside are those who have chosen to reject Christ and thus, by their own fault, will fail to understand the cheap teaching of Christ when he preaches and that then is what this precise parable illustrates, the dif difference between those who really and truly receive Christ's message of repentance and those who, in various different ways, reject that message so that it can't take root in them and they, they cast it away from themselves and they don't bear fruit. So that is the first of these parables. And that seems like a reasonably good place to pause and have a little music. Indeed, it does. Very interesting connection there, I must say, with the um, parable and the story of Jonah. I really like that. Uh, something I think it um, would be nice to take a deep look into um, in one's own time. 
Absolutely. We're going to listen to a song called Redeemer by Nicole C. Mullen, and then um, we'll carry on with this, uh, looking at chapter 13 of St. Matthew's Gospel. listening to Credo on Radio Maria, a program that nourishes you in your Catholic faith. And we are going through the book of Matthew with Father Richard Almsworth. So we continue with chapter 13. Yes, we do. And the next parable that Christ offers after the parable of the sower is one that is unique to Matthew. And it emphasizes a particular aspect of the parable of the sower. If you like, it takes that aspect and runs with it, and that is the aspect of judgment. As we'll see later on in Matthew, that's one of the major themes in an awful lot of his parables, especially those which are unique to his gospel, is the judgment that's coming at the end of time, the sifting of the good from the bad, the responsive from the unresponsive. So the parable I'm talking about here, beginning at verse 24, chapter 13, is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or darnel, as we sometimes have it. I will remind you how this goes. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field, but while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed wheat among uh, weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, 
collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The explanation we will have a little later on, it begins at verse 37, but I think it's very, very plain what this is about. The field is the world, the good seed, the children of the kingdom, the weeds are the children of the evil one. He says the enemy is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, the reapers are the angels, and, and this is the first time we get this note in St. Matthew's Gospel, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers and they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a favourite phrase of St. Matthew in his Gospel. So clearly here we have this notion of judgment very, very strongly. A very similar parable to the parable of the sower, but with that added notion of judgment. It's worth mentioning at this point that a number of biblical scholars choose to reject these allegorical interpretations of Jesus's parables. You will be told by many um, very highly respected biblical scholars, especially of the mid 20th century, that Jesus's own parables were very, very simple. They had one straightforward point, and all of these allegorical interpretations are in fact invented by the early church and don't come from Christ himself. I hope it's clear just by my tone of voice that I do not agree with those people. And indeed, I think it's really problematic when you decide that you're going to say, no, Jesus didn't say this. I only think he said some of the things that the evangelists have him saying in the Gospels. Where do you end with that? Effectively, you're making up your own Jesus instead of accepting the Christ that is presented to us in the Gospels. Um, it's right, of course, that the audience has shifted here from Jesus's earlier teaching, which was to the crowds, to Jesus explicitly teaching just to the disciples. So people have said, well, what this really is, is the evangelist giving some consolation to the early church for the mixed effects that their preaching is having. You know, the parable of the sower, well, sometimes we preach and it doesn't seem to do any good, or if it does, it doesn't do any good for very long. Or perhaps the, again, the early church, recognizing that perhaps not every member of the early church turns out to have been one of the good guys. And you can say, well, you know, we have this consolation from Jesus. God knows what he's doing. In the end, you know, they'll get reaped. Is that the past tense of reap? I think it must be. Not repped, is it? They'll get reaped and they'll be thrown into hell. But I think we have to face the reality that it is, in fact, the preaching of Christ himself. This, it's Christ who, in fact, introduces this notion of a place of judgment which is all about burning, weeping, gnashing of teeth. 
you don't really find hell in the Old Testament. It's Christ who actually uncovers this reality for people. The Old Testament has Sheol, which is a kind of place of shadow and darkness, but it's not a place of punishment, not a place of suffering. It's more a kind of shadowy nothingness, really. Why do I mention this? Well, I think partly because we're so often being told the God of the Old Testament, he's kind of nasty, mean God, who is a bit scary, and then along comes Jesus, and he's all sweetness and light, and that's much nicer. But obviously, the reality is a lot more complicated than that. There's an awful lot of sweetness and light in the Old Testament, and there is a lot more dark and shade, as well as sweetness and light, in the teaching of Christ. And it's undoubtedly the case, in my view, that it was Christ himself who preached a very stark and challenging message of judgment. And we need to face up to the reality of that, however hard it is sometimes to hear. That being said, we should notice, I think in particular, this line from the explanation of the parables. Let me just find it again. Here we are, yes. Um, the good seed, oh sorry, the weeds are the children of the evil one, um, but the, the, the bad seed is not just bad people, it is, and I quote, all causes of sin and all evildoers that God will get rid of. And that means that Christ recognizes, as we all do, the reality that the world is not made up of people who are 100% good and one people who are 100% bad. All of us are complicated. Um, we all have within us the capability of great goodness and many virtues, and we all have within us the possibility of terrible sin, and we're all afflicted with great temptation and with many vices. And so we can read this in a much more positive way, that if we allow Christ to do his work, if we allow his refining judgment to come into our lives, we don't have to wait for the end of the world for all the evil to be sort of torn up and burned. That can happen in our own lives. If we see that image as a purgatorial one, that everything in us which is, which is wicked, which is prone to sin, which is vicious, that needs to be destroyed. We need to be purified of that before we're capable of accepting the presence of God, before we're capable of entering into his presence and seeing him face to face. That needs to be purified from us, but that process isn't one that has to wait until the end of time or even until the end of our own lives. In fact, we can begin that process of purification even in this life. And that, of course, is what the sacrament of confession and the penances that we do following that sacrament are all about, a sort of anticipation, if you will, in the proper sense of purgatory. The next 
few parables that Christ uh, preaches in this chapter, I'll come on to them uh, more in a moment, uh, include some more parables about um, judgment. For example, um, the parable of the dragnet. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be, you've guessed it, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, the question is, do we want to wait or do we want to anticipate that sifting by doing a little sifting in our own lives and thus allow ourselves to be made ready to accept the kingdom of God uh, when the fullness of time has come. I think it's time to cheer ourselves up with a little light music. Yes, I would be hard pressed to find a song um, on our database about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Perhaps our, our listeners would be glad I to I shall just have to write one, shan't I? <laughs> yes, um, you shall. <laughs> this is a song called Oh Lead Me. And um, when we come back, we will be hearing more from uh, Father Richard Arnsworth about uh, chapter 13. We're still on chapter 13, I imagine. Yeah, yes. Yeah, we're not, we haven't moved on yet. Um, of of St. Matthew's Gospel. Um, you're listening to Credo on Radio Maria. Draw me to my knees so we can talk Let me feel your breath Let me know you're here with me going through chapter 13 of St. Matthew's Gospel, and um, it's there's a, a number of very interesting parables there. So if you have anything that you'd like to ask, you're very welcome to pick up the phone. Uh, I will pass on your call to Father Richard. Uh, don't worry about um, interrupting us. We would be very uh, pleased to take your call, whether we're in the middle of a conversation or not. Um, so I'm going to hand over to you again, Father. Thank you so much. Yes, please do ring. Um, there's always next time. It's not like you're going to run out of me unless the Lord calls me. Who can say? But, you know, all being well, I'll be back at the end of this month. So uh, where were we? Yes, we're reading chapter 13. I dotted around a little bit just to emphasize some of the links. And especially I've been talking about judgment. So the parable of the sower is followed by the parable of the wheat and the weeds, which is, of course, a very similar parable about 
how preaching the kingdom is like sowing the seed and it's God who sows that seed, by the way, very strongly implies that Christ is saying, when I preach the kingdom, when I preach my message of repentance, that is God preaching a message of repentance. Christ takes the role of God very, very clearly in these parables. That then emphasizes the notion of judgment, and I've spoken a little about that and drawn your attention to actually the last parable in this chapter, which is the parable of the dragnet, the nice fish and the nasty fish that are kept or thrown back. Of course, you wouldn't be allowed to do fishing like that these days. You have to, have to fish with the lines if you want to be ethical, don't you, rather than dragnets. But they were different times. There are some parables I've missed out in the middle of this section, and I want to come to those now. Um, the first of them is the parable of the treasure. I mean, almost by the time you've named the parable, you could have read it out. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the end of that parable. Then we move on again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Those two parables in the middle of this chapter. Um, there's one message which is, I suppose, kind of obvious, which is we should recognize the value of the kingdom. We should recognize that to possess the kingdom, to hear and accept the preaching of Christ is worth everything. We should be willing to give up everything. And goodness knows Christ makes that point over and over again. He tells the young man that he should uh, sell everything he has, come follow me, etc. I do want to suggest to you, though, that there is another way of reading these parables, not instead, but as well. He says, notice, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Now, in the parable of the treasure, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure and someone finds it. But in this second one, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of pearls. So he doesn't say the pearl is the kingdom. In this one, the kingdom of heaven is what's going out looking. So what is it looking for? Well, the answer can only be you and me. So I want to suggest to you that in addition to recognizing the huge, overwhelming value of Christ and his kingdom, as we should recognize them, we should also hear Christ saying to us in these parables that we are of great value. Just as the fishermen cast their nets into the sea because the fish are of value. And of course, Christ says elsewhere to the disciples, I will make you fishers of men. Christ came to find us, came to seek us out, and he considers us to be of great value. It's 
one of the themes that I find myself saying more and more often in my preaching, actually, um, especially since I recently became parish priest, which is very daunting. I've never been a parish priest before. Finally, I find myself having actual people to look after rather than just money or books. And it seems to me that one of my tasks as a parish priest is to make sure the people know that God loves them. Make sure that people know how valuable they are in the sight of God. His love for each one of us is infinite and inexhaustible and tireless. And I think that's a really important thing for us all to remember. This merchant who seeks fine pearls will never stop looking. He will never lose interest in collecting fine pearls. And no matter how difficult we make it for him to find us, hiding away deep down in the slimy mucus of the oyster, God will nevertheless continue to seek us out and rescue us from the depths of the ocean. As I say to people in confession over and over again, Jesus loves you, don't be afraid. And one more point to make about this chapter, which actually goes right back to the beginning. I almost overlooked it, but I really mustn't. It's uh, after the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And again, it's just two verses. One could almost overlook it, but it's a fun one. He put them before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make a nest in its branches. I recently read an interesting take on this, which I thought I would share with you if I may. I don't think it's the obvious take and I don't think it should replace um, the more traditional readings of it, but it's fun. Certainly, we should recognise that the mustard seed is not, in fact, the smallest of all seeds. And I don't think that matters. Jesus did not, in fact, come from heaven to earth to teach us about the sizes of seeds. He teaches us about how to go to heaven, not how to do agriculture. And similarly, the mustard bush is not the biggest of all the shrubs. But one thing which is interesting that I recently learned is this. It was, in fact, not unusual for mustard seeds to find their way into your bag of seed corn. And they were very difficult to tell because they were the same size and similar looking to seed corn. So you could accidentally sow a mustard seed or several mustard seed in amongst your corn. And this would be potentially a disaster because the mustard seed will indeed grow up into a shrub if you're not careful maybe not a vast tree, but one that was indeed big enough for birds to come and nest in its branches. And what would those birds then do? Well, they would eat your corn. So what is this telling us about the kingdom? I think one of the things it's telling us is that the preaching of the kingdom is disruptive and that the kingdom of God itself is, well, it's revolutionary. It is meant to overturn our world. It is meant 
to cause a disturbance in our serene progress through life. If it doesn't, I suggest to you, we haven't been paying attention. If what Christ says to us in all of his preaching does not continually challenge us, then we just haven't been listening. And the kingdom of God should be in our own lives, like this disruptive seed which threatens to uh, overturn our nice, peaceful lives. And we should allow the birds, I don't know what to make an analogy with these birds, use your own imagination, but we should allow these birds to come and peck away at our corn um, because that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. So in all of these parables, Christ confronts us with some very serious messages, messages about the disruptiveness of the kingdom, messages about the inevitability of judgment and sifting, and by implication of the need for us to allow ourselves to be sifted in this life, if we are not to be very thoroughly sifted in the next, but also a message of the relentless love of God, which will not allow us to be lost from him. So that I find is somewhat consoling when we are too worried about weeping and gnashing of teeth. And on that note, perhaps a little more music? Indeed. We'll be listening to a piece called King of Glory by a band called Third Day. You're listening to Credo on Radio Maria. We've been going through the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel with Father Richard Elmsworth. Um, you looked up surprised there, Father. No, no, I know. Oh, I'm okay. completely unsurprised. Oh, good. Um, my mind just temporarily drifted to a question about training altar servers, <laughs> but I shall return <laughs> it to you now that you've started talking. Very good, very good. Uh, if anyone wants to uh, ask a question, the number is 01223-375-564. I'm going to ask a question. Well, actually, I'm going to... Yeah, it is a question. It is a question. So one of my favorite parables, which we've mentioned, is the one about the um, treasure in the field, um, which I have the NIV version in front of me. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that yes. field. Yes. Interesting, isn't it? Mm, do you see what I emphasized there? I, I, I do. <laughs> I do. I do see that. Yes. So wh why did he hide it again? 
Well, that is a great question to which I have in the last 30 seconds, as I anticipated your question, <laughs> begun to turn my mind. I had noticed it before, and I, I can't remember what I thought is the yeah. honest answer. Okay. Um, I guess the question, I mean, I always say this about parables. The question is, who am I in this parable? Mm. Am I supposed to be the person who's found a treasure yeah. and then hiding it? Or am I, as I suggested with the pearl, am I the treasure? I think in this one, it feels more like someone has found it and hidden it. And all I can think off the top of my head is that doesn't it echo what we had earlier in this chapter about how there are those who respond and those who don't, mm. about how there are some who refuse to recognize the value of the kingdom and Christ preaches in parables. Do you remember what I said about the subtly different phrasing in Mark's gospel yeah. um, where Christ says, you know, I preach in parables so that hearing they will hear and not understand. Is there almost a sense in which this man who finds the treasure but then hides it is cooperating with God in making the treasure something that is not so easily accessible? Hmm. It seems like it, doesn't it? Um, and then, of course, I mean, the implication of the story is this. The guy finds the treasure and he doesn't own that field. So he's going to go and buy the field. And it, it's always felt to me as though the owner of the field doesn't know what he's got. Yeah. And the guy doesn't want the owner to stumble across this treasure between him finding it. And I, I've got pictures in my mind from that wonderful um, program, The Detectorists, that was on the BBC a few years ago, which was so delightful. Um, I'm, I'm picturing those two bumbling men deliberately hiding something back in the field so that they can then stumble across it accidentally on purpose. But now they own it because they bought the field, yeah. which is a bit dishonest, isn't it? Yeah. Um, precisely what one does with all of this, I genuinely mm. don't know. Well, Sorry, go yeah, on. Yeah, I'm just thinking. So you you were saying earlier that the um like the pearl of great price is is us, right? Yeah. Um, and so the treasure, if we we apply that to the treasure, um, Jesus, if Jesus finds in us a treasure, and then hides it again, that could be a reference to how the the um the way in which he redeemed us was kind of. Un, was shadowed to, uh, you know, like the the devil didn't know that he was ah, what was happening. He's hiding it from the devil. Yes, I see what you mean. Well, I like that. And who is, as it were, who is playing the role of the devil in Christ's ministry? Isn't it the scribes and the Pharisees ah. that he's been in conflict with? So is there some sense in which perhaps... I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head, so these are yeah, not yeah. going to be well-thought-out arguments, that the scribes and the Pharisees, in some sense, obscure 
the uh, value of the kingdom, don't mm -hmm. they? By laying great burdens on people which they themselves won't lift with a finger. I think he hasn't said that yet in the gospel, if I remember rightly. That kind of thing, is there something there? It seems to me like what is needed is a good hour or possibly day or possibly week of deep meditation mm. on those three or four words in this gospel before we are really going to come up with a really good answer. I mean, in all seriousness, you come across these things from time to time when you're reading the scriptures, something that maybe you've skipped over a hundred times yeah. and not spotted, and then you notice it. And you think, well, wait a minute, what does this mean? And the only solution, genuinely, is to go away and think about it for mm. a good long time. And occasionally, you then find, if you're a professional preacher like me, you can come up with a really brilliant sermon that you would never have known you could preach because you'd never noticed this thing before. Other times, you can't think of anything to say, so you skip over it and wait until it comes around in three years' time. <laughs> and I hope that you've got something in three years' time. Sometimes it takes three years. Well, if anybody hears Father Richard Arnsworth doing a sermon on that particular phrase, um, he hit it again, you'll know that um, he pondered on it here first, folks. Absolutely. It's all inspired by you. Thank you <laughs> for inspiring me. You're so welcome. Um, would you like, would you, would you end with a prayer for us, please? I will do that with the greatest of pleasure. Thank you. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. We thank you especially for confronting us with all of the challenges that it presents to us, making us think ever more deeply, pray ever more deeply for the gift of your wisdom. We ask you to open our hearts and our minds to understand your word and to give us the strength and the courage and the joy that we need in our lives to preach that word to others so that all may bear fruit for your kingdom. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.